You're on mute, Neil, I'm afraid. So welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to really think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time poor but enthusiasm-rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined by Christopher Such. Hello again. Neil Almond. Hello. And Danielle Colenbrander. Hello. And together, we're going to explore the teaching of reading irregular words. But first, Chris, what's you reading for? What you reading for? This week I started reading um, the Science of Reading Handbook, the second edition, and it's a, a, a massive book with lots of sections in it. So I'm not going to say that I've read the whole thing, but I'm going to refer to a particular chapter that I found interesting. Um, Kathleen Russell's chapter on morphological processing, I think it's chapter five, maybe, was really, really interesting for someone who's coming to the study of morphology as a relative novice. It was really welcoming, but it was still um, dug into the role of morphology, dare I say, from what she says, the un underexplored role of morphology in uh, word identification, and particular the way that this mediates the relationship between our understanding of orthography and the meaning that we take um, when we read. So yeah, highly recommend the Science of Reading Handbook if you're interested in reading research, but in particular, this chapter is, um, yeah, really interesting. What about you, Neil? What are you reading for? So uh, I'm reading uh, a paper that was referenced quite heavily in the paper we'll be discussing uh, momentarily, which is Dyson, Best, Solity and Hulme's paper about training mispronunciation, correction and word meanings to improve children's ability to learn to read words, purely because um, I think as a, as a practitioner, I'm kind of well versed in kind of most research about different aspects of reading but this idea of mispronunciation uh, correction as almost like a pedagogical choice was something totally brand new to me uh, and something that interested me because I wanted to learn uh, more about it and this kind of seems to be the first study that pits it against uh, business as usual kind of uh, corrections and stuff, stuff like that so yeah really interesting stuff lots to unpick and get my head around because I'm far from an expert in any of this uh, Kieran, what are you reading for? So I've gone for a paper from 2005. Um, I think it's Carl Hostetler. And it's what is, inverted commas, good education research. It's something I've been thinking about for a while because I sort of veer into positivism, post-positivism in terms of my ideal you know, sort of study design. And I, re I really want to challenge what I think. And so I'm not sure I agree with everything in the paper at the moment, but it's it's definitely a question we should ask is what is good inverted commas education research. Yeah, so it, it's interesting. Danielle, what were you what you're reading for? So normally I'm reading academic papers, uh, much more than books, but at the moment I've been reading a book called The Art and Science of Teaching Primary Reading by somebody called Christopher Such, who I believe you might know. Um, and I think it's a fantastic condensation of an enormous amount of research um, that's written in a really practical way. So I am happy to recommend that. For those like listening at home, rather than kind of watching this um, on video version, 
I, I, I'm looking very smug right now. I apologize, <laughs> apologies to all who can see my face. I'll stop. Yeah, that's excellent. Um, yeah, no, I mean, we're all very aware of how well Chris has done to sort of share his message and reading. It's fantastic that, uh, that then, you know, you're finding value in it. And, you know, I'm sure Chris contractually expects the guests at least once every month to, to mention it at some point. So <laughs> that's always a bonus. So we're going to explore your work as lead, sort of lead researcher on teaching children to read irregular words, a comparison mm -hmm. of three instructional methods. But could you start by briefly introducing yourself and describing in broad terms the areas of research that have related to sort of your career so far? Yes, so, um, well, as you said, my name is Danielle Colenbrander and I'm a researcher and manager of the Macquarie University Centre for Reading which is at Macquarie University in Sydney, Australia. And this center has two aims. So the first aim is, is a research aim. Basically we research everything to do with reading um, in adults and children. And the second is to try and translate this research into practice. And I'm involved in both aspects. So from the research angle, I'm really interested in the skills and knowledge that make up the process of reading comprehension. Um, so kind of all of it from the reading of the actual words on the page to making inferences and trying to learn from what you're reading. Um, I initially did my PhD on the role of vocabulary knowledge in reading comprehension, um, but since then I've studied quite a few related topics like reading and spelling, morphology instruction and reading comprehension instruction, so quite a few different um, areas. And the vast majority of my, my work's been carried out in collaboration with schools, um, both in Australia and in the UK. I actually worked in Bristol um, for a few years. And the other angle of my work is communicating information about this research to teachers and clinicians. Um, so our Centre for Reading has an associated clinic, um, the Macquarie University Reading Clinic. And in that clinic, um, we provide help for people with reading and spelling difficulties, and we also provide um, professional development um, for teachers and clinicians. So that's one of the things that I do. I run professional learning workshops um, for teachers and speech therapists and other people who might work in the area of reading. And more recently, we've also been working more directly with schools who come to us and say, we want to change something about the way we teach reading. And so, I mean, I really love that um, because I think that there's a nice feedback loop between the research that's happening in the centre and practical stuff that's happening on the ground. Um, and I find the teachers are always raising questions that I would never have thought of myself and making me look at the research very differently. And uh, I really like to be involved in collaboratively trying to solve practical problems about how to make reading instruction work. It's not something I could do on my own because I have you know, quite a specific area of expertise. Um, and it's the teacher needs that expertise, but they have so much expertise about, you know, the curriculum, the, the school teaching itself. And together, uh, we can try and bring those things together to try and, you know, move instruction forward. So I think I'm very lucky to have that kind of dual purpose to my work. I think that whenever I read the paper we're going to talk about today, like it really came across that almost every sentence was something that a teacher could either relate to or understand in a way that they could utilize it, you know, because sometimes papers will be intentionally opaque 
because they maybe didn't, you know, I don't know if it's unfair, but they don't necessarily have anything of value for the classroom. But it came across really strongly, you know, as a complete novice. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, I've read a fair few papers on reading and spelling and areas of literacy. And it's it's rare that a paper is quite so um, clear in, in, the, in the ways that it links to the classroom. It helps in this case that you are literally talking about uh, potential classroom interventions compared to mm -hmm. some of the slightly more kind of like basic research that people do. But yeah, it's that that sense of wanting to connect together the classroom and research was I thought apparent as well. Oh, that's wonderful to hear. <laughs> that's what I was aiming for, but one's never sure. <laughs> that's what you've actually managed to do. No, it was it was genuinely enjoyable to read. Even the, the introduction at the start, we were sort of setting the scene before you get into the sort of the, the actual research itself. You know, I thought this could be, um, you know, this could be in a, in a book for teachers. So we're particularly delighted to have you with us to discuss the paper that I mentioned before, Teaching Children to Read Irregular Words, on which you were the lead author. Could you briefly describe what you were seeking to investigate through this research? Yes, so when you say brief, <laughs> I'll try, <laughs> but uh, there's a bit of you know background to it. So, I mean, in brief, our initial reason for wanting to run this study was that there's just very little research out there that compares different ways of teaching irregular words. And the concept of irregular words itself is quite a controversial one, as I'm, I'm sure you're aware. And there's sort of two different extreme viewpoints. And, and when I say extreme, you know, I'm not saying there's any particular person that says this, but I think it's just clearer to set out the two extremes. The one is that, you know, English is just a really hard language to learn and it's so irregular that there's no point trying to teach regularities. And that leads to kind of a view of instruction where you, you think, well, you know, may as well just memorize whole words. The other extreme is a view where you think, well, if you teach enough information about how the spelling system works, then no words are irregular because you can find some sort of regularity or some sort of explanation for every single spelling that you're going to come across. Um, and now that's also not quite true. Um, for, for some reasons, firstly, it's not necessarily feasible to teach an enormous amount of information in great depth about the spelling system. Of course, we want to teach a lot of that information, but we don't want to overwhelm students. And we have really limited, well, you have really limited instructional time because you need to get children reading independently as quickly as possible so they can benefit from their independent reading. So there's that really tricky decision to be made about you know, how much you teach and what you teach, but also how you actually teach it. And there's just very little research on that. So most of what you'll hear is comes from um, theories about how reading works or um, studies of the nature of the spelling system. But in terms of actual studies in schools, looking at what actually is working, there's very, very, very few studies out there. So that's why we wanted to run this study. You know, there's so many questions we could have asked, but we had to start somewhere. So we thought, why don't we start with what a lot of people are doing now, which in Australia, um, it's different to the UK because phonics is not mandated. It's, it's part of the curriculum now, but there's still a lot of variability um, in terms of whether it's taught and how it's taught. So there's still, a, you know, there's a lot of sight word instruction that goes on. And uh, we thought, well, you know, we need to see if that's 
doing something maybe. And then the other thing we were interested in looking at is this um, concept of mispronunciation correction um, that you raised um, before, I think, um, Neil. So what this means is it's when you decode a word. So say the word is um, yacht. You decode it and you come up with something like yetched. Um, so it's not like you, you get nothing from trying to decode it. You, you get something. You get a spelling pronunciation. And then if you... Um, have some information from context, say the sentence is about sailing, then you might go, yes, oh, oh, yacht, okay, that's the word. Or maybe you don't even need the context from the sentence, maybe you just go, yes, oh, okay, but well, that's not a real word, but the word yacht is the closest I can get, so maybe, maybe that's the one. That's mispronunciation correction, and that's something that good readers will do automatically, um, and they'll do it for even regu very regular words um, as well. But it could be potentially powerful as an instructional tool for irregular words because it's co quite compatible with phonics because it starts with decoding. And because it could potentially be a strategy that students can apply to words that they've never seen before. Um, so not just a, a way to teach the written forms of a word, but also a way to get them to be able to learn those words from their own independent reading. Um, so that, you know, we really wanted to contrast that to sight word methods. And we are also really interested in trying to break things down into their key ingredients, because if you've read any of the studies that do exist um, using mispronunciation correction, they throw everything at it. So, you know, they've got that core mispronunciation correction stuff, but there's a whole lot of other stuff going on, vocabulary instruction and all sorts of other things. Maybe that's necessary maybe that's essential but we actually don't know and that's really important because coming back to this idea of limited instructional time do we have to do all these things to get those results or can we get the same results with something different so you know this is a starting point for a program of research really but what we wanted to do at this stage was break the instruction down into its key elements and then compare these um, different methods of instruction and we tried to make sure that it was a fair test of the different methods. So we tried to make sure that um, instruction time was equal across different conditions, um, that they children saw the written forms of the words for the same amount of time, and also that across groups um, they were equivalent on things like their existing knowledge of um, letter sound correspondences and their vocabulary knowledge and their word reading abilities. And so we delivered the training um, to kindergarten students. So that's the first year of formal schooling in Australia in their schools, um, in their third term of instruction. Awesome. And I'm, I'm whatever I'm thinking that this is a particularly important question with English because of the orthography. For instance, you might not find a similar situation in Spanish. That's always the one I go to because the, the, the orthography is quite shallow. Is that right? Yes. Yes, you're right. So English is, you know, it's borrowed from a lot of other languages. It's sort of like the Pac-Man of languages. It's, you know, going around sucking up words. And so that's how we end up with this situation where you have so many different kinds of spellings and some words that, you know, don't obey what we might think of, obey is maybe the wrong word, but don't, don't follow what we think of as the uh, most predictable ways to spell a word. So, you know, this isn't, this kind of thing isn't really a problem in very, very regular um, or transparent orthographies. Um, and the other thing about English is that it's morphophonemic, so spelling is also influenced by 
morphological structure of the word. This is something I'm very interested in. I didn't get into it in this paper, but that is another approach to teaching irregular words, maybe when children are older and you're getting to sort of more academic words with you know Greek and Latin roots and, and that sort of thing. So I, I want to mention that because it's it, I don't want to think about irregular word reading instruction without talking about morphology, but that's obviously not the focus of, of this particular study. Of the four of us here, I probably have the, the least knowledge. I'm the great, the biggest novice in terms of reading instruction and spelling. Obviously, I've listened to Chris and Neil have conversations for, for hours. So I think, you know, I really understand exactly what you're trying to find out. Could you briefly describe the methods you employed and in particular how you defined words as irregular and the key differences between a look and say approach, a look and spell approach and a mispronunciation correction approach? Yes, sure. So in a general sense, um, when it comes to defining regular and irregular, we, we prefer to think of it as a continuum from words like cat or split that you can read um, accurately using these really predictable one-to-one -one correspondences between letters and sounds to words with one or two irregular correspondences to, I guess, very irregular words like meringue or chauffeur, which have quite a lot of um, unpredictable um, letter-sound correspondences. But when you're making decisions about what you're going to actually teach, so this is very relevant for teachers, sometimes you, you just have to make a decision. This is a word that I think is irregular enough to be taught in this way. At the moment, I don't feel like we have a really good um, research to guide that question. Um, but we, so we did something that was just very practically based. So what we did was we knew that the kids had only had three terms of reading instruction and they only knew very basic grapheme phoneme correspondences. They did have phonics instruction, um, by the way. We thought, okay, we're going to be quite strict about this and we're going to say that a word that can be decoded using the most common sound for the spelling, that's those words are regular and anything else is irregular. So again, this is this is a functional definition. This is not, I wouldn't go around saying everyone, that's exactly how you've got to think about irregular words, but but for our purposes, because they were beginning readers, um, that's what we chose. And I think that raises um, a point about the definition of regularity is that it's not only about the characteristics of the word, it's also about the knowledge of the reader. Because it's one thing to say that a word is irregular for a really experienced and successful adult reader. It's another thing to say that this word is irregular for, for a child or regular for a child. If they don't know any of the correspondences or, or the regularities in that word. So that's how we made the decision. Um, and so that means that some of the words that we taught, which we called irregular words, only had one or two um, unpredictable correspondences in them. So that is, you know, a, a worthy thing to note. These weren't like wildly um, very irregular words. And so then we had these three instructional approaches. So one was called look and say, and that's this very basic um, kind of uh, traditional sight word approach, I guess, where the child sees the word, um, the instructor says the word aloud, uh, the child repeats the word, they do it again, and that's it, pretty much. Um, so really basic. Um, and what I should say for all of these instructional conditions, the children saw uh, a picture of the word as well, because, uh, well, with mispronunciation correction, um, 
it usually involves using a sentence to get some context to help you get from the decoded form to the correct form. But if we had used sentences in, in our mispronunciation correction condition, it would have caused all sorts of problems um, because that would have made the instruction very different across conditions. It's not just about single words anymore, then you know we get all this, these context, contextual factors. And in addition, these children really weren't at the stage of fluently reading sentences. So they, in look and say, they saw the word written down, they heard it said correctly, they said it themselves, heard it again, said it again, that's it. In the look and spell condition, they didn't actually say the word, they just wrote it down. So um, they'd hear the word and then the instructor would say, write the word on your whiteboard, they'd write it down, then they'd show the instructor and then they'd get feedback to spell it correctly if they hadn't done it the first time. Then they rubbed it out and wrote it again. And that was it. Again, so like very simple and brief. And then mispronunciation correction was a little bit different. Basically, the instructor modeled decoding the word, and then the children had a go at decoding the word. And then the instructor would say, is that a word you know about the spelling pronunciation? So say if the word was young, the spelling pronunciation is yang. Then the instructor would say, is yang a word you know? And then the children would hopefully say no. And then you could say, does it sound a bit like a word you know? Just have a think about it. And then after they've had a little bit of thinking time, put the written form and the picture, put the picture on the screen with the written form and say, the word is actually young, young. And then they say young. So it's a very simplified form of mispronunciation correction. It's usually much more involved than that. But again, we were really trying to equate the different kinds of instruction as much as we could and just try to drill down to those key ingredients. Is that clear? <laughs> yeah, crystal clear. And I think, you know, you don't need my validation, but it has all the hallmarks of the kind of thing that I'm really interested in, you know, clear parameters, you know, useful in the classroom and, you know, really robust scientifically. Like I said, that, th those are certainly my preferences. So I think, you know, it, it makes a whole lot of sense. Were there any conclusions that you and your colleagues drew from the research? Yes. So initially, we actually expected, and you may have guessed this, that um, mispronunciation correction would be the most effective method because we thought, you know, involves decoding, which, as we know, is the way that you build detailed representations of the spelling of a word in your memory. And because it also involves connecting to your vocabulary, so you have that extra element, and because it's potentially something you can apply to, to other words. Um, to any word. So we thought that that would be the most effective. And then we thought the next most effective would be look and spell because there's evidence to show that spelling a word, writing a word is actually a really useful way of um, teaching the spelling of it. Um, and then we expected look and say would be the least effective. And then we also actually had an, um, a control group that didn't receive any other training. They just went to class as usual. So they actually hadn't seen the written forms of the words. And we found that all three training methods were better than not seeing the written forms at all, which is, you know, not, not that surprising. But what wasn't expected for, for us is that we didn't find any differences or any clear differences between the look and spell condition and the mispronunciation correction condition. So, I mean, it's important to say that this was very brief training. So this was only, you know, three 10-minute sessions. So it's possible that if we did it for longer, then some differences might have emerged 
So maybe, for example, you know, would have given children more time to get used to the idea of using a strategy and that they may have been able to apply better um, to other words. But in this short period of training, um, we didn't see any differences between those two conditions. And so what we can conclude from that is that it's really, really, really important for children to process the details of a word's written form when they're learning it. If they don't process those details, it just doesn't stick in the memory. And so at this point, you know, it's not, it, it doesn't seem to matter which way you do that processing of the details, but I say that with caution because, as I said, it was a short um, training study and with longer training, we might find the differences did emerge. But it's really, really clear that you need to have this processing of the details of a word um, in order to, to learn it well. Yeah, as, as you were speaking there, I, the, um, I've, I've been through that process of working out what a word is as I'm writing it. And it's only at the point of writing that, you know, I, I can feel that sensation from my own school or time at school. And yeah, that's, that's fascinating. And the other thing that you might recognize about mispronunciation correction is how do you spell the word Wednesday? Because I still sometimes say Wednesday in my head. <laughs> and uh, so we do that. As successful readers and spellers, we do that. It helps us to remember, um, you know, the details of the spelling of the word. Yeah, I absolutely still do that. Yeah, 35 years I've been writing that word and <laughs> every single day. Especially for environment, government and all of those yes. ones. Yes. Um, you've answered my, uh, my kind of secret question I had, Danielle, because when I read the um, that slide in the paper about kind of the instructional process that you had, and it was young, but it was obviously done in the phonetic alphabet and Australian yeah. accent. And I was like, how are they pronouncing this word <laughs> at this point? So you've put to bed a kind of a big debate that Chris and I have had. And I really kind of agree with what you're saying. Um, what I'm hearing kind of really mirrors up with kind of Erie's idea of orthographic mapping and this idea of how much them, you know, spelling helps with um, spelling a word, which is why perhaps when I, having not known anything about mispronunciation correction uh, before reading this paper, um, my money kind of was probably on um, look and spell actually probably being mm. as effective because of that kind of uh, link there to that idea, you know, spelling words helps to orthographically map them so we can kind of, um, it can be part of our sight word lexicon. So um, what's really interesting to me is at the end of the paper, you write, and I'm reading this bit to quote it, um, it would also be interesting to determine whether a combination of decoding, matching decoded forms to correct spoken forms and spelling would be more effective than either MPC or spell alone for orthographic learning. So if we were to kind of do a little thought experiment, if you were to predict how this instructional method would compare against the other approaches um, that you've studied, um, what do you think you'd see? So I would predict that you'd see more learning um, with a combined approach than you would with either the approaches individually. I think they would complement each other. Of course, you know, I'm just guessing that's something that needs to be tested. But in terms of making decisions about instruction, I really don't think that there's any drawback to combining the two because it doesn't, the spelling does, you know, especially with very young children, add a little bit of, of instructional time. But uh, I, I quite strongly suspect that if you combine those two, uh, that you would Get better learning but it's something that i'd love to test at some point and just have not been able to yet earlier on you talked about um in particular the idea of regular and irregular words not really existing in a 
a dichotomy as such, except for the functional purposes of this paper, which is something yeah. that you need to do. But more, but um, in kind of reality, it's perhaps more productive to think of words as existing on a continuum where we have extremely irregular words and extremely uh, regular words at each extreme. And then there's um, a kind of a, a continuum between them. I wondered, do you think that this understanding of or this way of thinking about um, reg regularity of spelling. Do you think that this is something that's commonly understood and used within research? And from your experience, um, something that's understood by educators as well? Or do you think that this regular, irregular dichotomy actually holds in people's kind of understanding at the moment? So I think that within the research literature, that view of regularity as a continuum is becoming more and more accepted and widespread. I'm less sure about views in the education community, and it's hard for me to generalize because I only have, you know, the schools that I've been working with. But I think that it's quite difficult to people for people to think about dichotomies in general. I think that's a challenge. We naturally want to divide things into categories, particularly if we have to make decisions um, about members of, you know, uh, words that are on points on a continuum sometimes it's a lot easier to think of it as a dichotomy so I think it's quite likely that it would have sticking power as a concept um, over time and that it might be hard for people to uh, move away from that and thinking think about um, irregular words as being you know irregularities being a continuum but I think when we look at something like mispronunciation correction or even um, think about just spelling a word not necessarily um, in a look and spell kind of context, but just writing a word, you can do those things with any word. You can do those things with regular words and irregular words. And so if you're thinking about, if the type of instruction that you're wanting to use doesn't really require that sort of dichotomous thinking, then it's easier to move away from that view. I think ultimately the most important thing is trying to get those really, really precise and detailed representations of words in our memory. Ultimately, you have to go through the process of working out the details of a word, whether it's regular or irregular, to get it to stick in your head. And some, if people don't go through that detailed process of, of decoding, of, of writing the word, if they just guess or if, um, you know, they just skim over words, then what they've got in their minds are these fuzzy representations. And then when they see them, and they're trying to read a piece of meaningful text or even harder when they're trying to spell, then, you know, it's the, everything is going to be much, much, much more slow. And that's going to cause everything higher up in the chain to be affected. So when you're reading, if you have this really slow, uh, or not slow, if you have this really um, fuzzy idea of a word, then it's harder to process the word meaning and it's harder to process sentence meaning and it's harder to draw conclusions and learn from what you read. And if you really struggle to spell a word, maybe you'll go, oh, I don't know that word. I'm going to use a word that's spelt more simply that affects your writing, that affects how clearly you can express your ideas. Um, so I've completely veered from the point. But I guess what I'm saying is that for all words, regular, irregular, um, partially irregular, what you have to do is go through that um, laborious process of learning the details, breaking the word down so that you can build these really detailed and tightly connected representations that you can activate automatically and effortlessly. So I meant, um, you mentioned uh, 
earlier on with kind of some of the words that you use for your regular words kind of had to be um, nouns so that you could show a picture of it as part of the uh, instructional element of that. Do you think there would have been a massive uh, difference um, had you could use words that more like kind of single, singling words like your determiners and articles and things like that because those words tend to be you know quite smaller than some kind of these nouns that you might have had to find that uh, fulfilled your idea of um, irregular words and kind of thinking at this young age perhaps word length might have had uh, an impact what do you think? Yes, so word length could certainly have an impact if if children are, you know, decoding from left to right, then longer words are absolutely going to be harder and they are, um, you know, even adults are, are affected by that in their reading. So maybe they would have been harder to learn, but I'm not sure whether they would have necessarily, well, in fact, I think they would have been harder to learn because there actually is evidence that function words and grammatical words are harder to learn to read than nouns and ones you can, you know, picture in your mind. But I'm not sure if there would have necessarily been a difference, any more of a difference between the conditions. I think that's a, a really interesting question for, for future research, actually. I don't know. Do, do any of you have any thoughts on what you think might happen under those circumstances? I can't say that I do. I mean, I'm so new to this idea of um, mispronunciation correction as something um, as like an explicit instruction strategy. It, uh, that the idea of kind of see of thinking about how changes in the methodology might lead to different outcomes is kind of quite uh, quite new to me. But it, what's interesting um, is that when this was described, I thought, oh, well, this is a strategy that um, uh, parents and carers and teachers and teaching assistants use with pupils kind of one-to-one -one quite naturally pupils will mm -hmm. come across a word yes. rather than when they see it we will encourage them to have a go we'll say something like we'll try to sound it out or try to decode it whatever consistent language is used in a school and then once they've had a go at it the parent teacher teaching assistant whoever it might be will then say oh, okay no actually this is this is how we sound it out so there's a slight difference there though i guess in certain circumstances um, a teacher, teaching assistant, whoever it might be, might say, okay, you've sounded it out. Can you connect this? And the thing this reminded me of, and I wondered whether I could, you know, ask you about this. It reminded me a little bit of comprehension strategies in that I felt that there was a sense that this might be once, ch once children had got used to the idea that this was something that they could do and that they could, they actively needed to do to benefit their understanding that it wouldn't necessarily need to be something that was like a, a skill that needed to be taught over and over and over, but yes. actually like a habit that we want children to have inculcated. What, what, do you think there's any um, yes. comparison between yeah. the two? I think potentially that that could be the case. So I think the interesting thing, I, I may have said this before, so apologies if I'm repeating myself, about mispronunciation correction is, is that it's got, yeah, these two purposes. One is to actually a way of teaching the written form of the word and another is as this strategy or as this kind of procedure that that you follow and I do think that it's something um, that you could teach children to do and that is something that they could use in their own self-teaching um, in their own reading and I think one thing that maybe people don't always spontaneously do is to actually um, emphasize these spelling pronunciations like Wednesday or go government or something like that you don't want to emphasize them too much because you don't want that to be the, the only thing that the child learns. But there is a little bit of research out there to show that actually, um, you know, explicitly saying those spelling pronunciations after decoding, that 
that can help um, in itself. So, you know, sometimes if it's, if the child's decoding it and they're part of the way there, but you know, their decoding actually isn't correct, then that's something you'd want to correct to the spelling pronunciation. And then you'd want to say, so is this a word, you know, or is there a word that you think would fit? So, yeah, I, I think actually that the spelling pronunciation in, in some cases can be quite a powerful sort of mnemonic um, for how to spell the word. When I read this paper, something that jumped out at me was the, I, I guess the word I would say is like opportunities for certain people to intentionally read it and misinterpret elements mm -hmm. of it to forward a different agenda. Because what you've described quite precisely there is um, the strategy for working out an unfamiliar word that could be useful for pupils uh, moving forward in their independent reading, something we know that pupils do. We know that um, if they come across an unfamiliar word, we want them to decode it. And then they, if they don't recognize it, they will, they will need to use context on some level to kind of get to the correct pronunciation. And that could link with uh, this, uh, this idea of self-teaching. But as soon as I saw um, the research kind of a mention of, um, and I understand exactly why it was done for research purposes, um, when you mentioned kind of pictures in there and the idea of context, I immediately imagine um, whole word, whole language or balanced literacy advocates seeing that and intentionally misinterpreting it to say, look, when this is this shows that when children encounter words, that decoding is just one of several strategies. I know that's not what this paper is saying, but do you no. <laughs> have any do you have any worry in the back of your mind that it might be intentionally misinterpreted? I mean, yes, there's always potential for misinterpretation. And I think especially when there are a lot of nuances um, involved. But, you know, my comeback to that would always be, but mispronunciation correction starts with decoding. It's a fundamental part of mispronunciation correction. It doesn't happen unless you have the decoding. So it's not that the child is just looking at the word and then just wildly guessing. They are decoding to get to a partial pronunciation and then they're using the context to help them so the entry point is the decoding um, so that would be kind of my response to a person who was trying to use that argument but I think there are a couple of other issues that that, that raises and it's sort of a miss a very common misunderstanding of context kind of thinking of context as a monolithic thing that applies to all aspects of learning to read but it plays a very different role in learning to read words compared to learning to learning meanings so what, what that means is there's actually research to show that when children are learning to read words, they actually learn better when they see the words in isolation than when they see them in sentence contexts. And that's different from when a competent reader is reading a text, then they do sometimes make use of contextual information to help them read. But what a competent reader does doesn't actually tell us anything about how we should teach a child to read for the first time when they've never learned to read before. So there's those kind of two important distinctions actually between the role of context in learning to read a word and the role of context in learning meaning because context is important for learning meaning and can be helpful um, when learning the meanings of new words um, sometimes. And also the distinction between how beginning readers would use context and how adult successful readers would use context. And I also think that, you know, if you think about this children who have only been reading for three terms, 
Well, context isn't very helpful for them because, you know, they're still going through quite laborious processes of reading individual words. Um, so context is like looking at context is not a particularly good strategy when they're very young, but as they get better at that, you know, they know more letter sound correspondences and they're building up their um, bank of known words in memory, then it can become a tool um, that they can take advantage of. Um, yeah, so hopefully that <laughs> answers hey. the question. It does indeed. Th that being the case, do you think that um, a, a possible avenue for future research might be the the timing of the kind of teaching of mispronunciation correction as a strategy? Because naturally, it might achieve different things at different times and be more efficient to be introduced at different stages of a pupil's orthographic development. Yeah, I think that's a really important question. So the children that we worked with were, as I said, in term three, so they were pretty young. And that did cause some issues for us because, as I said, we could, we didn't use sentence context for a number of reasons, but I don't think it would have worked for those kids because they would have struggled to decode the sentence context in the first place. And, you know, they weren't really at the stage of reading lots of sentences independently. So, you know, the process of decoding and getting to a spelling pronunciation and retrieving the word, that was really operating at, at a single word level. But maybe it would be more effective with children saying in, in grade one, when they are, you know, able to be slightly more independent in their use of context. So I think that's a really important question um, that does need to be answered by future research. It's always good to have, because I'm writing some notes here as you go along, and the first thing that I wrote down is MPC used later in that reading continuum. So I'm thinking this was... Uh, kindergarten maybe around year two level for us which is when they're about seven years old it's probably about and they've had that kind of first layer of the basic code they're kind of coming towards the end of learning that advanced code you know this is probably probably a good point where yeah. mispronunciation uh, correction probably could probably come in so it's good to hear that uh, on the same page of that one thank you my final question is kind of about the what you didn't see in terms of generalization of mispronunciation correction to the kind of, because you had two sets of words, you trained them with some certain words and then you had some untrained words at the end. And I'm guessing then to see, could they use any of this to uh, read some of these untrained words? Yes. Um, what I kind of noticed was that there was no kind of these, taking your um, definition of what an irregular word, irregular words are, there wasn't any kind of match between these irregular uh, grapheme phoneme correspondences between the two words. So you had um, stomach in the untrained word, for example, which has that, that sound at the end. And then you had spinach, which is spelled C-H, but doesn't um, spell mm -hmm. the sound. If you had some a word like perhaps uh, monarch, for example, that does end in that kind of uh, spelled C-H, do you think there might have been greater evidence for that generalization had um, these kind of words perhaps matched up in some of these irregular correspondences? Uh, yeah, quite likely. So one interesting thing that um, sometimes people are not aware of about sight word instruction is that uh, there is some evidence from studies of teaching children limited sets of frequent words that sometimes they can generalize to other words that have similar spellings or that are um, very frequent in written and spoken language. So if that 
can sometimes, and this is, again, you know, it's a small area of research, but there is a little bit of evidence there. And if that can happen from sightword instruction, then yeah, I would definitely think it would be quite likely to happen from mispronunciation correction. Um, so the reason we chose those particular words is because we had to match them on a whole lot of um, characteristics like their length and how, you know, imageable they were and um, their frequency and things like that. But um, yeah, I think that would be quite likely. And again, something that really should be tested because that has implications for, for instruction, obviously, for the kinds of words that, that you would teach together. Um, so there's just one more thing I wanted to say actually about sight word instruction, because uh, you know, you know, you might come away from what I've said thinking, um, I don't think that there's any place at all for sight word instruction, but that's not true. Um, and that maybe is a controversial opinion because in general, people tend to be very against sight word instruction as something that could, you know, uh, cause children to unlearn uh, what they've learned in terms of their graphing phoneme correspondences. And certainly I would never recommend it as something to do at the very very beginning of instruction, I wouldn't recommend it as something to do a lot of. But for some of those function words that are extremely frequent, sometimes there, there might be an argument for teaching those using a sight word method to get access to a broader range of text independently. So from the perspective that if you're going to start with mispronunciation correction a little bit later, but you don't want to hold back children from being able to access um, certain types of text. Maybe you might want to teach some of those um, function words. Very, very limited set. And, um, you know, I, I would say you could certainly decode them first and, and then, you know, write them down. You just wouldn't have to do the mispronunciation correction part necessarily. But I do think that there could be a place for that. And I actually think that that's something we don't really know yet. And uh, that comes back to kind of what you were saying before about what timing, <laughs> where do you fit these different aspects in? And I think there's also a question about what kind of words are suited to what kind of instruction, which comes back to your question about the function words versus the nouns. So there are lots and lots and lots of questions still to be answered about this. And because I'm, I'm a researcher, I step back from it and I say, well, maybe I try not to rule things out. <laughs> um, but if, you know, obviously, if there's a really good reason to, I would. So I think that's still an open question, whether there might be a place for sight words, always bearing in mind that decoding is essential, teaching letter sound correspondences is absolutely essential. And that's how, that's the tool we have for teaching ourselves words. And um, so that is always central. So maybe that's slightly controversial, but I just, I felt that I needed to say that. I, I don't think it's, it's that controversial, uh, at least from a kind of, UK or England perspective, most like phonics programs will have some element of there's a recognition that if you are teaching the most common grapheme phoneme correspondences that and we want children to begin engaging with texts that they'll need to um, recognize the and a and mm. um, as a bad example, because <laughs> the, the or they or we or ones that contain correspondences that they won't have been taught yet, where some of the uh, disagreement comes in is how they uh, might be taught um, so for mm. example what you've said there about them initially being introduced through some kind of decoding or initially introduced even through asking them to be spelled um, mm. is something that I yes. think would be um, basically accepted across uh, most of the uh, English education system there are some I think who understandably 
um, try and generalize into from from other things they know to say that all forms of sight word recognition mm. are definitely going to be damaging. But yeah, from the, the limited or comparatively limited uh, knowledge of the research that I have, it does seem to be the case that there's nothing there's no there's no solid basis for us to say that we should completely rule out the teaching of any sight words no. to begin with and that's something that we may learn from research in the future yeah. before kieran um kind of does his thing can i just say how hugely grateful i am for you to have come on the uh, kieran's podcast it's yeah i, I, I i've absolutely loved this so like, thank you so much <laughs> for sharing your expertise so generously that's a pleasure. It's what I love to do. And thank you for inviting me because, yeah, it's one of the favorite parts of my job is trying to make this stuff comprehensible to people who aren't immersed in it 24-7. So, yeah, thank you. Yeah, and I'll just share Christopher's uh, sentiment. Thank you very much. Um, this is the most nervous I've ever been. It's like, oh, my gosh, I'm a real, like, <laughs> leading researcher. Like, don't say anything to be totally embarrassed myself. Um, I <laughs> I don't think I have. So thank you very much. No, you definitely haven't. And I'm not very scary. <laughs> yeah, usually my editing process is me chopping out hours of what these guys have said, but they've been very well behaved today. You know, you know I'm trying to think, <laughs> how can I get Danielle back in future? <laughs> well, I'd be happy to come back. And yeah, if you want to talk about something like morphology or something like that or vocabulary that's also stuff that I'm, I'm really interested in so yeah 100 I, I mean i know chris you've been reading about morphology very recently haven't you the very beginnings of it like i say the chapter from that book um a, a book called an introduction to morphology by i think daniel carstairs mccarthy i think mm -hmm. which was really interesting as well but it's yeah it's an area that i know very little about and would love yeah. to learn more about from you and there's a lot to learn. I mean, I, I did linguistics in my undergraduate degree, and then I trained as a speech therapist, and then I started to learn about morphology. So it's not a simple topic, but it can be, I think it can be broken down and it can be taught. So who picks up your research going forward? Because you, know, you said, okay, there's, there's a case for a longitudinal study here. Will it be yourself or are you moving on to a different sort of focus? Well, I uh, have never had a permanent job. I have always been on short-term contracts. And uh, so I don't know next year <laughs> exactly what my job will be. What usually happens is, um, you know, I, I pick up various different pieces of work. As much as I wish I could say, yes, next year I'm going to have a few hundred thousand dollars and I can run the study um, I'm not sure but hopefully if everything goes well <laughs> I will be able to we actually wanted to um, try and collect some more data this year but it was just impossible because um, you know we couldn't go into schools it, it wasn't and it wasn't fair on on the teachers to be coming in when they're trying to <laughs> deal with the chaos of everything to then say hey why don't you do a research study um, but maybe next year um, maybe next year <laughs> hopefully. Awesome. Well, it, it's been an absolute pleasure today. Thank you so much for joining us. I think all that's left to do is to say thank you very much, Danielle. Uh, thank you. It was wonderful to be here. Thank you, Chris. Thanks again for having me, Kieran. Thank you, Neil. Thank you very much, everyone. Really enjoyed that. And everyone at home, until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>